Well, most of us have played the game of hide-and-go-seek. You know, whoever's it covers their eyes. They begin to count one one thousand, two one thousand, while everyone else scatters looking for that perfect hiding spot. And as the one who's counting gets to that magic number, they call out, ready or not, here I come. You know, we live in a world right now that is filled in the news with natural disasters, economic uncertainty, wars and rumors of war. The Middle East is a powder keg. Every time there's a battle over there, we think, is this the battle leading to the ultimate battle of Armageddon? So many wonder, where are we in terms of this final countdown when Christ is going to call us home or when the world is going to come to an end? This is what we're going to be talking about today as we turn in our Bible to Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. What we're going to see as we look at Luke 17, 20 is the turmoil and the questions are not new to us. These were things that were being asked back in Jesus' day. The Pharisees came to Christ and they wanted to know, when is the countdown going to be over? When will the kingdom come? So I invite you to look with me now as we read Luke chapter 17. And I want to read the passage uh, in its entirety today from verse 20 to 37. It says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking and they were buying and they were selling and they were planting and they were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. As you can see, there's a lot going on in this passage. And it can cause additional questions like, is that the rapture of the second coming that's being talked about when it says one is taken and one will be left? And what does it mean for the kingdom to be here and yet to be longing to see the days when it will come? As we talk about the answers to these questions, what I want to make sure is that you don't miss the answer to the first question that was asked. The Pharisees said, when is the kingdom coming? And rather than saying, ready or not, here I come, 
what Jesus said is, I've already come. He says, the kingdom is here right in your midst. And you've missed it. I want you to remember that the context of what is happening was the first century where Rome was in power. Israel was being oppressed by this foreign government. The Romans were there. And what Israel, the Jews of that day, were looking for is a military Messiah, somebody who would come in, who would, who would overthrow Rome, who would remove them, and would usher in this earthly kingdom where Israel would be back in control. All throughout our study in the, the Gospel of Luke, Uh, We've seen where Jesus was setting people free from disease and demons and even death. And so they're saying, well, if you're the Messiah, then set us free from this Roman oppression. And what Jesus wanted them to understand is that God's plan for the Messiah was not merely a military Messiah. God's plan involved so much more. It was the ultimate overthrow of sin and death, the defeat of our enemy, Satan, And as Jesus tells them that the kingdom here in verse 20 is not coming with signs to be observed, it's not that there was an absence of signs. There had been an abundance of amazing miracles that were taking place. But as these were happening, when you read here in Luke 17, 20, that the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, that word is a very rare word. It's only found here in the entire New Testament. And what that word means is to observe the future by signs. It carries the idea of spying or lying in wait. It, 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 it even covers the area of scientific investigation. And so what, what God wants us to understand is, yes, we need to know his word. Yes, we need to look at what's happening in the world around us. We need to see and understand these things. But what he doesn't want us to do is to get so caught up in trying to predict its arrival or plot the progress toward the end that, that we miss then we miss who it is at the center and what the whole purpose was for who it was, the Messiah, at the center of the plan to come. If you look all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, it tells us that God revealed his plan from the very beginning. He told us that the Messiah would come to overthrow Satan, to defeat sin, death, and Satan. And any time we look at prophecy or we study eschatology, that's a big theological word that literally just tells you it's the study of the end times. What we need to make sure that we don't miss is who is at the center and why he came. We see it in passages like Daniel 9:26, where it says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Daniel 77s that unfold the entire prophetic calendar for us, right there tell us what the whole purpose of the prophecy and its revelation is. It's to show who the Messiah is and why he came. He would come to die on a cross to pay the penalty of sin and death that we owed for our sins. And so as we look at prophecy, as we look at what is happening, the cross is central. It is the key. It is the key to everything. It's, it's what allowed Jesus to receive the name above every name where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He was already God, but he was exalted to this highest position because of what he did. And it's the key for us in terms of the kingdom as well because it's what lets us in to the coming kingdom because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We all are separated from a holy God. And the only way that we could be with him in heaven one day is through what his son Jesus did on the cross to wash away our sins, to pay this penalty of death. 
that allowed his righteousness to be imparted to us so that we could be a part of the family of God. So this is key. The cross comes before the crown in every respect. Now, if you've been at Wayside for any length of time, you've seen this chart. If you're new, you've suddenly gone, what is that? Well, this, this, this is my famous chart that I've made, right? So don't get overwhelmed by this. And, you know, you can take a picture if you want. But as I've told you before, anytime I put slides up here, they're on our sermon uh, section of our website at waysidechapel.org. So you can go there. You can download this. You can study it in depth on your own. So don't get overwhelmed by looking at the chart. But again, you see there at the very beginning, the Messiah being cut off is central to everything. Now, today, what we're looking at here and what we're talking about is the kingdom. And the kingdom... There is a literal millennial kingdom. The word millennium means a thousand years. And there in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 7, you see that it talks about this thousand year reign of Christ that will be here on the earth. Now, there is so much more than we have time to talk about today. And we've already covered this subject earlier in our series in Luke. Again, if you go to the sermon section of our website, back in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 35, we spent an entire message on the millennial kingdom. Who gets into it and what does it mean for us as believers to co-reign with Jesus? So if you miss that sermon or you need a review, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon because we're not going to have time to go into the same level of depth today. But the millennial kingdom is a real and literal kingdom that will happen for a thousand years here on the earth. And I know as you saw that chart earlier, and even as you hear these words like millennial kingdom and things, you're thinking, Roger, this stuff overwhelms me. It just confuses me. I, it, it, it just, I can't get what it means. So I want you to relax for a moment. I want to tell you the one thing that you need to walk out of here understanding today. If you get nothing else from this message, what I want you to get today is who is Jesus Christ and why did he come? Who is Jesus Christ and why did he come? Because as we look at our passage, what the Pharisees said is, we want to know when the kingdom will come. But what was tragic is that they missed the king. They missed the king, Jesus Christ, who was standing right there in front of them. Jesus had been walking among them. He had been teaching them. He had been doing amazing miracles. And yet they were blind to who Jesus was and why he came. As we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, earlier in this series, we looked at Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. And there it said, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. You know, here the Pharisees say, what are the signs of the kingdom? What do we need to be looking for? And there in Luke chapter 11, there was a sign that was given as well. Ironically, Jesus had just cast out a demon. And rather than acknowledging Jesus' authority over the demonic realm, the Pharisees there said, well, you do this by the power of Satan. You're not the Messiah. You're, you're working in conjunction with Satan. And, you know, that wasn't the first sign they had seen. Remember, in Luke chapter 11, we had already seen a, a number of amazing miracles. It began all the way back when Luke reported the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ and then his birth. He talked about the miracle of the angelic announcement. He, he talked about all, we saw the amazing things that, that Jesus was doing where people were being healed of sickness. 
There were others who were being brought back from the dead. Jesus had calmed storms. He had fed the 5,000. He had cast out other demons before that. And since Luke chapter 11, we've seen additional amazing miracles. And so sign after sign after sign had been coming. And they're saying, "Um, what should we be looking for? And Jesus said, you know, the only thing you need to know is the sign of Jonah. And in that passage, we talked about how Jonah had been swallowed by a great fish and he had spent three days in the belly of this fish. And then he was uh, spit out and he came out alive three days later. And this was pointing ahead to how when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he would be buried in a tomb and three days later he would come out alive. After the resurrection, he walked the earth for 40 days. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. And Jesus says, if you want a sign, that is the one that you need to look for because that will tell you who the Messiah is. And it will point to why he came as he died on the cross. As we look at Luke 17.22 in our passage today, you see that Jesus uses the same title as he did back there in Luke 11. He says, you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. The title, Son of Man, is a very important title. It it appears in the Gospel of Luke 26 times. It's found in the book of Ezekiel 80 times. It's used in the book of Daniel to point to the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, One like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. You have God the Father and God the Son. The Messiah comes before him. And it says, To him the Son was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. When he uses this title, Son of Man, there was no doubt as to what Jesus was claiming. The Pharisees knew very specifically he's saying he's the Messiah. He's claiming to be God. It's why in Luke 5.24 we saw where they cried out blasphemy when Jesus said there that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The religious leader said only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, I agree with you. Remember there, in terms of another sign, there was a paralyzed man lying in front of him. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and they go, blasphemy. And he says, oh, you think it's easy to say your sins are forgiven? Which is harder? Tell this guy to get up and walk. You're healed. Get up. And the guy picked up his pallet, as you remember, and he walked out the door. He said, do you want to see authority? you want to see proof that I'm who I say I am? The Pharisees wanted to know, when will the kingdom come? And what Jesus is telling them is, you can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have the kingdom without the king. And he says, the king is right in front of you, and you're rejecting him. And he says, so you're worried about when is the kingdom coming, but what you need to understand is, you don't get to come into the kingdom if you reject the king. And so what he says is, you need to understand who I am. You need to receive me. When Jesus tells them in Luke 17, 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some of you may have translations if you're using a King James or a New International Version where your version says, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, let me just make sure you understand something here. That's, that's a proper translation. The Greek verb that is used here, the preposition, can mean within, among, 
or in the midst of. And while it's a proper translation, it's not the best rendering. Because when you read the kingdom of God is within you, what that confuses some people to think is that Jesus was telling the Pharisees, well, you've received me as the Messiah. And so the kingdom is within you. We're told that as believers, we have to ask Jesus into our heart. We have to acknowledge he's who he is. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so what is clear, though, is the Pharisees have not received Jesus. They've rejected him. We'll see that again all the way near the end of this gospel because in Luke 19.38, it says there that the crowds were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. That's the crowds, that's the people. But listen to what's happening with the religious leaders. Luke 19.39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They say, Stop it. Tell the people to stop. This is blasphemy. They're calling you the Son of God. They're saying you're the Messiah. And you'll remember that Jesus said, Well, if they fall silent, the stones are going to cry out. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. They wanted to know when is the kingdom coming. And Jesus says, you need to know the king. Because without knowing the king, you don't get to come into the kingdom. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior, you need to do so. Now, I'm not trying to scare you in this message into heaven We're going to be talking about hell. We're talking about judgment. And I'm not here to scare you, but I am here to tell you that God makes very clear there is judgment and there is separation. And you're either in or you're out. And the determination of what gets you in is what you have done with Jesus Christ. Remember John 1.12 says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And if you're like the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were rejecting Jesus, what he tells them is, you will be rejected. He makes that clear in the next verses in our passage. As you look at verse 22, notice that the focus turns from the religious leaders to the disciples. He says, you guys are rejecting me, so I'm going to talk to those who have received me, those who understand who I am. And he begins by saying, a time will come when you, the disciples, will long to see my return. Now, as I told you, Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after his resurrection. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. And one place that we see uh, what happened after his appearances to everybody, right before he ascended into heaven, before he left the earth physically and went to his throne in heaven, it tells us in Acts chapter 1 and verses 6 through 11, In Acts 1, 6, it says, So when they, this is the disciples, had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. I love this passage. Jesus is is ascending into heaven. The disciples are standing there, miles wide open. They're looking, and, and, and they just continue to stare up into heaven. 
And it tells us that two angels, it says, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They look up and they go, hmm, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What he says is he's physically left the earth, he went into heaven, and there is a day coming when he will physically return to the earth. You see that in Zechariah chapter 14 where it says his feet will physically stand on the Mount of Olives and they'll be split in two. That's called the second coming. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. That's different from the rapture. The rapture is when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We go into the clouds and are taken to heaven. The second coming is when he returns physically to the earth. And as we're looking here at Luke 17, it's talking about the second coming. It's not talking about the rapture. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. And then there is the second coming that happens after the tribulation that begins the millennial kingdom. And as we're looking at this, this is talking about his second return to the earth. And there's going to be no doubt when this happens, friends. It is going to be a worldwide event. Nobody will miss it. Matthew 24, verse 27 tells us, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And if you keep reading there in Matthew 24, what you see is it tells us specifically when the second coming is that it's after the tribulation. Listen to Matthew 24, 29 through 30. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will, say, they will see the Son of Man coming. There's his title again. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. They said, what is the sign? And Jesus says, you'll know when the second coming happens that the earthly kingdom begins. Now, the tribulation is going to be a time of great suffering. That's the final 70th 7 of Daniel chapter 9. That's the seven years of tribulation, the extreme suffering that happens here on the earth. Those of us who are Christians will not be in the tribulation. You see the pre-tribulational rapture that I have there. Now, I know there are people who are here that have a different theological view. You see yourselves as being mid-tribulational or post-tribulational. And if you want to go through the time of suffering, you're welcome to. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be raptured. I'm going to be with the Lord in heaven. Now, how do I know that? Well, because God tells us that. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to await for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.10 tells us, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, for the disciples, they were living before the time when the rapture would occur. They were looking forward to it. But they were going to go through persecution. They were going to go through suffering. And that's why Jesus says, as you go through these hard things, you are going to be longing for my return. You're going to wish that it were here. But not everybody was expectantly looking 
to the return of Christ, taking advantage of the salvation God offered. And to underscore this, Jesus gives us two examples from the Old Testament. The first one is the flood that's found there in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. Remember, he was talking about Noah. That's speaking of the flood that occurred that you can read about in Genesis 6 through 8. And the other is the destruction of Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. Now, both of these are examples to us of people in the world who were caught unprepared. It told us they were engaged in going about day-to-day activity. They were eating, drinking, marrying, buying, and selling. And suddenly judgment came. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us how Noah witnessed his generation in the years preceding the flood. As he was building the ark for over a hundred years, he was witnessing about the judgment to come, and, and his preaching fell on deaf ears. In terms of what the ark means in, in, in what we're talking about today, this is what we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, one for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, remember 120 years, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It was only Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives that entered the ark and were saved from the flood. In the days of Noah, the ark was right there. Noah was telling people, you need to turn from your sins. You need to turn to God. You need to, you need to by faith, step into the ark. God has given you this method of salvation. And it says only eight people did so. And the rest were wiped out in the flood and the judgment that came. Rather than get into the ark, the people perished. And 1 Peter 3 presents this as a picture of the salvation that we as Christians have been given. He says, there is a way home to heaven. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, I've provided the ark, so to speak. I've provided the salvation from the coming destruction and judgment. But you have to take a step of faith. You have to put your your faith in me. You have to step out on that cross and walk across the chasm of sin through the penalty of death that I paid to wash away your sins. He says the boat is right there, friends. All you have to do is step into it and be saved. That same offer of salvation is open to everyone here today. Remember 1 John 1.12, but as many as received him, put your name in there. If you've received him, it says, you will be received. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What have you done with what God has done for you? Have you rejected Jesus as the Messiah, or have you received him for who he is? Do you understand why he came and what he did for you? In Luke chapter 17, we see a second example that reinforces the first. Because in verses 28 through 33, it tells us, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that, the, that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. He says it will be just the same. On the day that the Son of Man is revealed, on that day, 
The one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? Have you ever read the story of what happened there in Genesis, the account that happened? Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Abram, you'll remember, was in Ur of Chaldees, and God said, I have a promised land for you. And he called Abram out of there, and he said, you're going to go into this land, and I'm going to make you this great nation, and you're going to be given this land. And Abram was journeying, and his nephew Lot came along with him. And as they were traveling, there was, there was the, the different flocks that they had that were intermingling. The herdsmen were competing for pasture, and after a while, it just became this, this difficult situation. And so eventually, Abraham said to Lot, he says, okay, listen, Listen, you get first choice. You get to go anywhere you want. If you go this direction, I'll go that. If you want to go there, I'll go there. And so as he gave Lot first choice of where to sojourn, Lot said, that's a really nice lowland. I love the valley. It's lush. It's well watered. It's this wonderful place. But the problem was there were, there were some wicked cities in there, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the people were exceedingly wicked, depraved. All kinds of stuff that we see happening in our days was happening there on steroids. And Lot says, I'm going to go live there. And he he had a house in Sodom, and, and that's where he was sojourning. And there came a point where God said, the wickedness has become so great, my, my patience can no longer endure it. I have to bring judgment. And so he revealed to Abraham what was going to happen. And Abraham pleaded for the life of Lot and even for the cities. And he said, God, if there are 50 righteous people, 40, 30, and he bargained with God all the way down to what he thought was an agreeable, well, surely there's going to be 10 or so good people there. And God said, I'm going to send two angels to confirm what's happening in the city. And these angels appeared as men and they walked into the court, uh, into the central area of the city and and. Lot was there seated in the the gate showing he was a leader, a judge in that city. And and he knew what would happen. These strangers had come into the city and he knew the depravity of the city meant that people were going to take advantage of them. Not just robbing them and cheating them, but gang raping them is what the scriptures tell us they sought out to do. And so Lot says to these two guys, thinking they're, they're physical men, you need to come and live in my home tonight. You can't stay out here in the square. They argued a lot, impressed upon them. They, they, they went with him, and as they went into his house, it says that the men of the city, from the young to the old, showed up at his house. They began beating on the door, saying, hey, we know there are two visitors here. Send them out so that we can, we can rape them. And, and Lot, there was something called the law of hospitality that said if somebody was in your home, you had the responsibility to protect them at all costs. And and Lot, in his misguided attempt, even says, look, I'll give you my two daughters. Have your way with them. Just don't harm these men. Men and women in that city were abused. It was no big deal. And and Lot comes out of the house, and he tries to reason with the people. And they say, look, because you're standing in the way, we're going to abuse you now too. We're going to get the men and you. We're going to destroy everything. And at that point, the angels blinded the crowd, the mob. And they pulled Lot back into the, the home, and they said, listen, This is as bad as we thought it was. God's going to wipe this place out. You need to get out. Is there anybody else here in the city? His two daughters were engaged to to two men there. He went and pleaded with them to go. They thought it was a joke. And and so Lot and his wife and two girls are like, well, we don't want to leave our home. And the angel said, you got to get out right now. 
And one of them grabbed Lot and his wife by the hand, and the other one grabbed the two daughters. And it says he led them out of, they led them out of the city. And as they were fleeing, uh, the angels told them, do not look back. Don't look back. And when it tells us, remember Lot's wife, what Lot's wife did was she looked back. It wasn't because she heard these massive hailstones hitting and it startled her and she's like, what's going on? The Hebrew word that is used for her looking back means to have a, a longing in her heart, a longing to return to what was there. Her feet were taking her in the right direction, but her heart was not going with her. And as she turned back in her heart and mind trying to hold on to what the world offered her rather than receiving the salvation that God was offering, he said, flee to this city, this little town, I won't destroy it. Go there and you'll be saved. But she did not receive it. She turned back to the world. She wanted to hold on to what she had. And she perished as she turned into a pillar of salt. As you look at your life this morning, is there anybody here that's a little bit like Lot's wife? Are you struggling with the stuff you've left behind once you've come to faith? Are you saying, well, I want to be a believer, but it it means I'm going to have to give up these sins or these things that I like. I love the stuff of the world. and So you're trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot following Christ. And what God says is you can't do it. Friends, there is nothing in this world that is worth forfeiting the eternal life and riches that God offers to you. As you look at what you're giving up for what God wants to give you, eternal life and and eternity with him and the, the riches that he offers you, this world has nothing, nothing for us. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 tells us, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lot's wife's treasure was back in Sodom. The stuff of the world was more important to her than the salvation that God was offering when he said, do not turn back, come here and you'll be saved. In Philippians chapter 3 and verses 13 through 14, Paul tells us, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As you think about how you're living, is it looking back? Or is it forgetting? what lies behind and reaching forward to what's ahead. Paul says, I was headed for destruction and Jesus Christ appeared to me on the road to Damascus. He literally reached down and he snatched me out of destruction. He appeared and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. He saved Paul. And then then Paul says, as he grabbed hold of me, I grabbed hold of him. And it's what we're called to do as well. The idea here is of seizing or taking possession of something. And Jesus warns us if we reject the gift of new life that God is offering, then he says we too will be rejected by God. Look at Luke 17, 34 through 37. He says, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. It says two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. 
Now, you'll see those brackets around that verse. And what that means is some of the best manuscripts don't contain that. That some scribe apparently inserted that here to kind of bring more harmony to the passage. But it's, it's not needed. It doesn't change anything. And it says in answering, they said to him, where, Lord, where are they going to be taken? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, earlier in verse 24, we saw the second coming of Christ is going to be seen worldwide. Right? The lightning is going to flash from east to west in the sky. And here we see this again. This isn't some hidden event. If you're sitting around going, did I miss it? What's, how am I going to know? Jesus says, think of the world. At any point in time in the world, it's, it's dark and night at one place. And on the other side of the globe, it's daylight. And he says, there are going to be people who are in bed sleeping in this side. And there are going to be people who are going about their daily tasks during the daytime. He says, this is going to be a worldwide event. He says, nobody's going to miss it. Now, this is not describing the rapture. The rapture, remember, is where we are taken, literally caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But what's being talked about here is the battle of Armageddon. You see, the battle of Armageddon happens right before the millennial kingdom. Now, to help you uh, zero in on what this is, the second coming of Jesus Christ is what's in view And he says that when this happens, one is going to be taken, one will be left. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But first, let's determine where they're being taken to. As you look at Revelation chapter 19 and verses 17 through 19, it tells us, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him, who sat upon his horse, upon the horse, and against his army." You see, what's being talked about here is the one who sits on the horse is Jesus Christ. You see, as you read through Revelation, how he's described in returning, and the army that comes with him are the raptured believers. We who are Christians who were raptured earlier before the tribulation, we've been waiting in heaven with him. And at the second coming of Christ, after the seven years of Daniel's final 70th seven are complete, Jesus returns at the second coming. The second coming, remember, is when he physically stands on the earth. He will return physically to the earth. We come with him. And when he returns, during the tribulation period, there will be people who come to faith in Jesus. Remember, all believers are raptured at the beginning of the seven years, but during the tribulation, many will come to faith in Christ. Not only are all the Bibles left, uh, the sermons that have been preached, God's going to send two witnesses who will walk the earth and talk about who Jesus is and what he did. There will be many who come to faith in the tribulation. And those who are not killed, those who are not martyred, will be physically those who enter into the millennial kingdom. Now, if your eyes are glazing over, let me just put the cookies on the bottom shelf here. It says there are two people. One is taken, one is left. At the rapture, the ones who are taken go to heaven. But remember, we just saw the ones who are taken are taken to judgment at the Battle of Armageddon. Their bodies will be eaten by the birds of the air. 
So the ones who are taken are taken in judgment. And we saw that in the Old Testament examples that were given. Do you remember the ones who were left? Noah and his wife and the three sons and the three daughters? It says eight of them remained to enter into the new world. The rest who were destroyed in the flood were taken in judgment. When it came to Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his daughters, in spite of the sins that occurred afterwards, they were left while all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the valley were destroyed in judgment. Those who are taken in this passage are taken in judgment. Those who remain will physically enter the millennial kingdom. We as raptured believers will have received our new resurrection bodies, and that's where we're coming and going from the new Jerusalem. We're reigning in authority. Remember, go back and listen to that sermon. I I don't have time to go into all this, and it grieves me because you know how much I love this. It's like Michael talking about the Trinity. You get me on eschatology, we'll be here all day. There will be those who physically enter the millennial kingdom. They will be marrying, they will be having children, whose children will be having children, whose grandchildren, for a thousand years generations will be born. The Bible says if you die at a hundred years of age during the millennial kingdom, you'll be thought to be so wicked because you die early. Because it will be a new dispensation, a new way of operating. Jesus is there physically on the throne. And as mind-blowing as it is for people to see the Lord, there will be many who do not receive him. And they are the ones that then will be uh, part of the rebellion when Satan is released after the thousand years and the battle of Gog and Magog takes place. So this is what's happening. But at the end of the thousand years, there will be a judgment called the great white throne judgment. And everybody who has rejected Jesus Christ, not just during the, this time, but those from all the ages, from the very beginning of time, will be resurrected. You see the unbelievers through all the ages will be brought before the great white throne judgment. You see that, you can read it in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 through 15. Now, anyone who is a Christian does not go before the great white throne judgment. We will have already been raptured. We will have already been with the Lord. Our judgment is the Bema seat, which you'll hear about in that previous sermon that I preached earlier on July 22nd. Everybody who goes before Jesus at the great white throne judgment has one destination, the lake of fire or what we call hell, because they rejected Jesus. And because of that, they will be rejected. They did not accept his death as the payment for their sins. And so Jesus says, you have to die the second death. You have to go to the lake of fire. As I said in the beginning, if you get nothing else from this message, you need to understand who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus is the son of God, the promised Messiah, who came to go to the cross and die to pay the penalty of death for our sins. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. We all owe a penalty of sin. Romans 3.10 tells us there is an unrighteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not a man, a woman, a boy or girl who has ever lived other than the Son of God, who was fully God and fully man that has lived a perfect life. And because we are all sinners, we all owe a penalty of death called sin. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the good news is this. But God gave his son. He died for us. He died so that we could have the gift of eternal life. 
It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the way that you receive his gift, the way that you step onto the ark, so to speak, to be saved, the way that you flee from the destruction and go to where Jesus said is to go across the cross. It tells us in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The word confess literally means to say the same thing as God says. It's not just listing your sins, but it's saying the same thing as God says. It was wrong. It needs to stop. There's a penalty that has to be paid. And when it says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, what we're doing is acknowledging he is the king. He is the son of man. He is the promised Messiah. And he came to die for you and me, shedding his blood to wash away our sins. And if we receive his gift of eternal life, we go into the eternal state. We go into the new heavens and the earth. We go into eternity with him to worship him and be with the Lord forever. Those who reject him will be rejected and sent to hell. I'm going to end today by praying a prayer. There's nothing magic about the prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But if you're here today and you understand that you need the Lord in your life, that you need to turn to him and accept him as the king, then you have that opportunity. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. I'm not praying this prayer because you've been scared out of hell and into heaven today, though that's probably not a bad thing for some of you. But if you're somebody who's not yet received the Lord and you're ready to do so, I invite you to bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I know, Lord, I owe a penalty of sin called death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through you, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And today, Jesus, I'm turning to you. I'm asking you to be my Savior. I believe, Jesus, you died on a cross to pay the penalty of death I owed for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead, Jesus, showing that you conquered sin and death and that you were who you said you were, the Son of God. Today, Jesus, I accept your gift of grace and new life. Thank you for inviting me into your family. Would you help me to live my life in a way that would honor you? I pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be here at the front. There will be other prayer leaders. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took. And for the rest of us who have already received the Lord, I want you to remember Acts 1, 6 through 11. It tells us as Christians, we're not to sit around staring up saying, is this the day? But he tells us we are to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem. That's San Antonio. In Judea, that's Bear County. In Samaria, that's Texas. And to the uttermost parts of the earth to go worldwide and share the good news of who Jesus is and why he came. Will you stand and sing this closing song as we worship our Lord and King?